2: Thursday the 18th of October with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The British Prime Minister addressed the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and the leaders of the other 26 European countries for 15 minutes in Brussels last night. She asked Europe to give some ground in the Brexit negotiations. They said in response that she must offer some new ideas. The upshot is a stalemate and another summit will not be called until sufficient progress is made on dealing with the Irish border. But both sides have agreed that their negotiators will keep working on finding a solution in the background. Mrs May did say to her European counterparts that she is open to extending the transition period by a year. And this is in line with Europe's proposals for a two-tier backstop, an indefinite backstop for Northern Ireland and a temporary backstop for the rest of the United Kingdom. This morning, the Irish government says there is room to be optimistic that a deal can be done. Earlier this morning, I spoke with Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Brexit, David Cullenan, and I asked him if he was optimistic.
3: Well, I was always optimistic that we would have a deal because I think it's in the best interests of the people of Ireland and also in the best interests of the people of Britain. Having a crash by Britain out of the European Union is a disaster for businesses in Britain. And also it's a disaster for Ireland because it means an instant hard border. The problem is that uh, we are now into October without any agreement. Uh, We are reaching the 11th hour where still issues Mm -hmm. remain. Uh, We were told last June that we would have a resolution of the Irish issues. That hasn't happened. And obviously there is a difference of opinion between the British government and the European Union on the insurance policy or backstop that needs to be in place for Ireland. That gives Ireland a certainty that whatever happens in terms of the future trading relationship, and we want Britain to have a very good, robust uh, customs partnership with the European Union, that suits Ireland as well. But that's up to the British government. And if that doesn't happen, uh, we need to make sure that we have our insurance policy to ensure no hard border. And that's what the backstop does. And
2: will the the solution wash, do you think? Uh, Because the solution is an indefinite insurance policy, if you like, for Northern Ireland and a, a temporary insurance policy for the rest of the United Kingdom.
3: Well, we have to have a permanent solution for, for Ireland because the Irish people are not going to accept any hardening of the border. And it is the position of the British government that we don't have either a hard border, uh, a land border in Ireland or a, a border in the Irish Sea. That's also the position of Irish politicians uh, as well. So what we have for the North mm. is a bespoke, unique solution that isn't on offer to any third country, if you like, uh, a country or a territory outside the European Union, which the north will be. Yes, but because Uh,
2: it's different to the rest of the United Kingdom, it's not acceptable to some. Uh, And if the level of acceptability uh, means that this won't wash, well, then you have two other possible solutions. One is that they forget about Brexit and uh, the uh, other being uh, a united Ireland.
3: Well, first of all, the only reason why we would have any difference between the North and the rest of Britain is if Britain doesn't get a customs solution or a customs deal and we don't have some sort of customs partnership between Britain and the European Union. So what we do know is that there is, I suppose, parallel negotiations going on. There is a negotiations on the withdrawal agreement, which has to be in place by March. That needs to and has to have a legally operable protocol, or insurance policy, whatever you want to call it for Ireland, that has to be attached to it. And then, of course, you have the other issue of the talks that will involve having a, a future trading relationship between Britain and the European Union. What was offered to Britain is that uh, we could extend by a year the implementation period so Britain would stay in the customs union and single market for a longer time period until uh, the future trading relationship is agreed. So the, the answer to that question, Michael, is that that's a matter for British politicians. So if British politicians want to create a border in the Sea, or if British politicians want to walk away from a customs deal, uh, then that's a matter for them. But if you look at the stated positions yeah. of the two parties, the vast majority of Tory MPs, in my view, don't want a hard Brexit and the position of the British Labour Party is that they want... Britain to stay in the customs union a a customs union so I to think stay
2: to, to stay in the customs union and be free to strike trade deals with other countries across the world
3: Well I don't think that was ever possible. It it might be possible to uh, have some sort of uh, trade agreements separate from the European Union but if Britain wants a customs arrangement and a free trade agreement that essentially allows them to stay in some form of customs Mm. uh, partnership obviously there has to be a trade-off and there has to be an alignment of rules and standards. I think that's Uh, the most likely scenario. Uh, What we're seeing here, and I think what we need to be conscious of, is there is a lot of audiences which have to be catered for. We have a British Prime Minister that has a divided party. Mm. She has to be careful that she brings people with her. Uh, We obviously have uh, differences of opinion in, in, in Britain as well outside of the political sphere. And I think what we all need to do is obviously be mindful of that. But we have a responsibility in Ireland to make sure that we get a deal. I believe that what's on the table, and I say this as a Republican, I want to see a united Ireland. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that the deal which the European Union are putting on the table is a constitutional threat to the north of Ireland.
2: Hmm. Uh, But, uh, I mean, a united Ireland would take away the question of a border. I'm sure you're right, it's not a a realistic prospect uh, at the moment, Uh, but is what you're suggesting now realistic in that, if you consider the people who voted for Brexit, do you think that they would consider that to mean Brexit as they voted for it?
3: Well, first of all, the people of the North uh, voted to stay in the European Union. Yes, people in England and Wales voted for Brexit. And there was all sorts of reasons why, and and Mm. there's all sorts of issues at play. But I also believe, if you look at the uh, numbers in Westminster, the vast majority of MPs actually want a solution Mm. which ties uh, uh, Britain to uh, the rest of Europe as close as possible in terms of trade. Because sure, but trade when,
2: when, people, when people voted for Brexit, they t- they were, to a large degree they were voting to stop foreigners coming into Britain, they were voting to stop uh, Europe saying you can't have uh, crooked bananas or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, and they were also voting for the ability to strike up free trade deals uh, across the world. Now, it would seem as though uh, you're talking about uh, a customs arrangement and regulatory alignments, which would mean that this is not the Brexit they voted for?
3: Well, the problem is I'm not here to defend the people who advocated for Brexit. I was always very clear, Michael, that the type of Brexit that the likes. Hmm of Rees-Mogg and uh, others uh, were uh, advocating was never a realistic proposition because they always argued that you could be a member of a golf club resign your membership not pay your fees uh, not be bound by any of the rules but still have the full benefits of being a member of that mm. golf club that was never a oh and i'm not philosophy. suggesting
2: that that and you share that it's, it's view it's for, but how do you contend with
3: it well we're contending with it uh, by having the negotiations that we we have and I've, mm. I've made the point that i'm mindful that there are differences of opinion in the british Tory party i'm also mindful that yes people did vote to leave the european union but britain can leave the european union and still have a robust trade arrangements with the rest of Europe, which is what we want. But just in terms of the United Ireland part, Mm. um, and I'm just going to, if I can say this, it's actually the DUP who are creating the circumstances in which the United Ireland could happen quicker as a context of Brexit, because they have aligned themselves, for whatever reason, to the hard right in the Tory party. We're the party, and Sinn Féin is the party that wants the United Ireland, but we are working with the Irish government and with the European Union and others to get a, a solution for the here and now, for businesses and for citizens who live either side of the border, where we don't have any hardening of the border, we protect the Good Friday Agreement. It is the DUP, if they got their way, that will create an instant hard border Crash by Britain out of the European Union and siding with the the hardest of Brexiteers in the British Tory party. And I don't see the logic of that. What we have on the table at the moment, and I think all parties on the islands need to reflect on this, is the best of both worlds option for the north. That no other region that will be outside the European Union will have its unique solution, which we argued for from the very beginning. So let's take that. And this isn't about orange or green, because this is in the best interest of all of the people. And this is really crucial for the people who live on the island of Ireland. It's massively important. And that's why we in Sinn Féin have always got behind an Irish solution, which is based on three fundamental principles. Protect the Good Friday Agreement, avoid the hardening of the border and protect the rights of citizens. That's all we want. And I think the deal which is on the table, by the European Union is a good one and if I can make this point about Europe I think it's, it's in some respects it's a good thing that Europe is standing firm there's good and bad in the fact that we don't yet have a deal hmm. what's good about it is that the European Union hasn't uh, let Ireland down and they haven't uh, walked away from the commitments they've given us which is that they will only move to a withdrawal agreement if there is this insurance
2: policy And you don't think there's a, a risk of that uh, I mean everybody heard Brendan Howland during the week
3: Well, there's always a a risk when you get to the 11th hour and that's why we would have said to the Irish government you need to get uh, a nail-down agreement from the from the British government as early as possible now the Irish government were working towards that they wanted to have a deal by June mm. uh, to be fair and to their credit uh, so we wanted that as well it's it's the fault of the British government in many ways that we still don't have that arrangement but yes, as you get to that 11th hour and now it looks like there won't be a summit in November mm. possibly not even December, you're into January it's always possible that something will be put on the table that doesn't do what we need for Ireland but I would take comfort in some way from the fact that that hasn't happened up to now, we're getting to the crunch talks, and Europe still seems to be four square behind. An Irish uh, position and is it possible that marks- that
2: 's strategic uh, in that uh, the worst deal of all is no deal, uh, regardless of what mrs may says it 's going to be bad for people north and south of this island and indeed across the United Kingdom, undoubtedly bad for people right uh, across Europe. If there is no deal, it 'll be chaotic and it 'll re- see a return to world trade Organization rules uh, but uh, Is it strategic of Mrs May to bring this down to the wire so that she can go back to the House of Commons and say, look, this is all I have to offer at this stage. There's no time uh, to negotiate anything differently and that you're into January, February uh, and it's a take it or leave it scenario.
3: I think that's a strong possibility and it chimes very much with what I was saying earlier that she has to bring people with her and she has to make sure that she doesn't give any wriggle room to those hard Brexiteers. So I don't have any difficulty with giving a British government and a British Prime Minister space that's needed to get a deal over the line. But the reality is that we can't have any fundamental shift in the position. Uh, the British government seem to be saying that they don't want a permanent backstop for uh, the North, and they're asking the Irish people essentially to take a leap of faith. That trust us that in the end, in the final analysis, uh, and this is at, at a time when the withdrawal agreement will be in place, there's no more veto, no more real influence the Irish government will have. That will be done and dusted. And voted on by all the member states and listen sometime down the road we'll negotiate a trade agreement that makes the backstop irrelevant we can't Afford to take that leap of faith. We may well, in the end, and we hope that we get a customs arrangement that does exactly that. But there's no guarantee, which is why the insurance policy or the backstop is is very important. And yes, there is high politics being played out. There is uh, all of that, which is uh, part of the uh, negotiations. I'm sure everybody, including the European negotiators, are aware of that. But you'll understand as well, Michael, that as Irish politicians, we have a responsibility to get as quickly as possible the certainty for Irish businesses, for Irish farmers, north or south, and for Irish citizens in relation to Brexit, and that we defend the voters of the north who voted to stay in the European Union. And when a good deal is put on the table that gives the north the certainty that it needs, I think there's a responsibility on all of us to get behind that deal, to push it, to make it happen, and to get it over the line.
2: Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Brexit, David Cullinan, TD, speaking to me before we came on air today.
1: Michael Reed
2: on LMFM The Justice Committee has been hearing from groups about their experience of crime and law enforcement. Yesterday it held its third such meeting with the Irish Farmers Association and the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association telling members of the committee of their experiences. This will all feed into a report on community policing and rural crime which will be published later this year. The IFA called on members uh, to support uh, the idea of a dedicated rural crime task force. And we're joined now by Richard Kennedy, Vice President of the IFA. Good morning to you, Richard, and thanks uh, for joining us here this morning. This is uh, a model which uh, could be duplicated from the United Kingdom, as I understand it.
4: That's that's right, Michael. We've we come across that in the UK. We have, we have uh, been visiting other um, jurisdictions to just to see how they deal with rural crime and uh, it was one of the things that we came across in 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 the UK where they have a dedicated uh, task force uh, that go in, that goes in in, in an area where there's particularly black black spot on rural crime and it supports the uh, the the, uh, the the police in the, in the case in, in the UK and it would it, we are saying the Gardaí in the local area in Ireland
2: and the reason for this is uh, that you're all the more isolated and therefore vulnerable when you're in rural areas rather than in urban areas, and all the more so uh, along the border. And uh, I think you're suggesting uh, that uh, this task force would liaise with uh, the PSNI north of the border.
4: Absolutely, Michael. That that's that is critical because uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, isolation is such. Is you know, it it is. It, it brings more vulnerability to, uh, to people living. When they're living in isolation, they fear much more because they don't have the security of numbers that people have, maybe if they're living in, 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 a, in, a, in a village or in town. So it is critically important that all resources are used and all all agencies uh, collaborate and at to the highest possible extent in ensuring that all information is passed from one side to the other. And there is absolutely no need that why it shouldn't happen and we're just encouraging more and more of that because we feel that uh, rural crime is certainly increasing, fear out there is not just the people that are actually you know, suffer directly from rural crime, it is the people that fear it as well, people that, and the fear of people, you know, if somebody's attacked in their locality or robbed in the locality um, most of the people didn't feel more and more vulnerable, so it, look it's critical mm. um, there is a you know, the the, 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 the Number of you know to be increased as we go along so it is, but it is important that visibility out in rural areas is, is you know is increased.
2: Garda's statistics have been called into question many times over. In recent times, the Central Statistics Office, one of the bodies, questioning the statistics that have been provided to them in relation to murder, not able to trust uh, the amount of people who have uh, been defined as murdered in the statistics. There's been questions about penalty points and uh, breath testing, motorists, uh, and so on. Now, you went into the committee yesterday and you said that you didn't want to bash the guardee, uh, uh, but whilst you weren't guard bashing, uh, you were calling into question some of the statistics on rural crime.
4: Look, I think we st- we must start from a new a new sheet. No, I think we have to start from a new battle I don't think, you know, I don't think the, the statistics have all that much credibility, um, and we're not we don't want to go back to the past. I think, look, I I'm I'm, I'm as, as my job as vice deputy president of IFA, I travel the country. Um, I come across people on a regular basis that could, you know. And look, uh, anecdotally, uh, the statistics don't add up. I, but look, I yeah. have absolute well, confidence going forward that we can we can make you know all together pulling to, together that so we can uh, solve this problem.
2: Anecdotally, so, the statistics don't add up, you say, Richard. Uh, but statistically, crime is on the decrease in rural Ireland.
4: I, I don't I, look. I, I don't agree with that, um, and because I meet so many people that are not reporting crime. They find it absolutely of no benefit to record, report crime because they get, you know, they just feel that they're not being listened to. Mm. And I uh, look, I think, I, I look, I, I don't want to go back to the past now. But I look, I from we have a, we have over nine hundred and fifty about uh, nine hundred and fifty ranches around the country. IFA has mm. uh, look, I meet many of them from, and I, I look, they only if I talk about statistics, people look at me with a blank face. They just don't believe it. And uh, look, I, I don't think we need. To, that's not where our argument is now. Mm. I think our argument is, look, and, and we, want to, we want to work in cooperation with the Gardaí. And as I said yesterday, this is not a Gardaí bashing exercise. This is, a, this is support. We need the community because in the past, in the past, there was, you know, there was a lot more visibility and you had less crime, Hmm. Um, and we need more visibility.
2: But you're obviously calling into question how Garda resources are managed, uh, because uh, you gave uh, some curious stories to the committee members yesterday, one of a a theft on a a farm, uh, and Garda were stationed a kilometre away, uh, but didn't respond. The response came from Garda, who were 22 kilometres away.
4: Well, that is, no, look, that has nothing to do with the individual Gardaí. That's, that is
2: an administration. Yes, that's problem. what I'm saying, the management of Gardaí resources. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised, I, I didn't see the detail of where that happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happened in Leytown uh, with Gardaí up the road in Drogheda, about uh, the response coming from Ashburn.
4: Yeah, yeah, you, you have a good example of it. And, and it, it wouldn't be the only place it happened. But look, that's something that you can't blame the Gardaí directly for that. Uh, that's an administration problem and it needs to be put right because the boundaries, we've had some very frustrating, frustrated people contacting us that they're may, maybe living a, a kilometre away from a guarded guard station and when they ring that station they're told that, that they should bring the, the station 20 miles away. That's ludicrous stuff and that needs to be solved uh, and that is not something, that's not something that IFA can do or, you know, that is an administration thing and that should be done straight away.
2: Uh, you told another story as well of the armed support unit tracking a, a group of criminals, a, a group uh, that was spotted by a resident who called Gardaí to their surprise, apparently.
4: Yeah, because that is exactly going back to the boundary issue again. It, this was in a different district, and the the the, 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 in, the in the district over the kilometre away didn't know. Look, it, I, I it is very hard for people to understand what was happening in that situation? But it meant that people, people felt more and more afraid and vulnerable.
2: So, so when they rang the local station, the guardie didn't know that uh, armed guardie were uh, in pursuit of these people. They didn't; they weren't aware of it at all.
4: No, they weren't aware of it, and that's I all I can
2: say. Mm. No, that's it. Right, which uh, does seem pretty bizarre, and again, calls into the management of uh, the resources, the administration, as you put it.
4: Well, I think I think that it, that is that is blatant that you know that have that that incident happened it's not denied now because mm. uh, and the districts there, need, there needs to be more cooperation there, and I mean that's a simple thing to put right um you know they're like, like uh, many republics you know and it's not acceptable at all and when the general public hear that they lose confidence, you talk about statistics, mm. like when you see something like that go on why, why would you believe anything?
2: is it worse than it was before do you think uh i, I mean you talk a, a, about uh what you hear anecdotally undermining the statistics uh but uh is that because of technology and what we know about because we're looking at people's stories on the internet
4: well look i i i am not involved too much in the internet no i i have practical practical experience out in the countryside i have no doubt that uh rural crime needs to be tackled immediately. I think it has become more severe. Maybe there's not, you know, I don't know about the numbers now, but certainly the the attacks on, on elderly people have become more severe and there seems to be, the criminalities seem to have um, less respect um, for for, for for the people that live in rural land or anywhere else as well. I think it's just it's just this is not this could get out of control if we don't handle it. And I've, I have mm-hmm. confidence in the fact that it can be done. I've met with numerous goblins around the country, and and I have found that look at we have good cooperation. And I, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm confident and hopeful that this can be dealt with. And I think the task force. Uh, a dedicated task force would be a big help.
2: All right. uh, And investment, I gather. uh, I mean, we've been hearing stories of uh, cars being taken off uh, the road because of engine failure or 300 kilometres on the clock. uh, The upshot of that is uh, that the guards who were using them don't have a car because the cars aren't replaced. Uh, In the meanwhile, you're talking about more crime, more of that crime being more violent uh, and the technology that goes with all of this uh, because of high-powered cars on motorways. Uh, And indeed, uh, I think uh, at uh, the last meeting of the committee, Muencher-Nateria was complaining about how some of these criminals are taking... Uh, a view of people's property using drones and uh, the cameras on them and that sort of thing uh, so that they've uh, a clear picture of what to expect when they decide to burgle.
4: Yeah, that's, that, that is, uh, like that again, that's more anecdotal evidence and uh, we would we would agree with that. Uh, we would, that would be our experience as well in IFA that that's, that is going on. Um, look, uh, it is it, as I've already said. It has become mm. it has become more sophisticated. Um, it's more. It has become more serious. So it does need to be tackled.
2: Well, what about people's right to protect themselves?
4: Yeah, um, looked at all that often comes up. Um, I have. I. I, I mean, I, I have met people now that have been, uh, you know, have been attacked and have have had their property taken from them, and I, I have. You know, people get, you know, you talk about defending yourself. The bottom line is, uh, if you do defend yourself in a very robust way, you might be burnt out of, the, out of your farm a couple of days after. And that's what I have found people who have said to me that they have, um, they have defended themselves strongly and robustly, mm. but they have spent maybe the next month in fear at night, for fear that the guys will come back again, you know? So it's not, this is not simple now. This is not simple and it's not, it's not just a case of uh, people just going out and defending themselves because you're very vulnerable. Like, these, you know, the, the, the criminals have, um, they have the resources and they feel they can travel the countryside at will um, and I know from personal experience I travel the country, uh, you know, over the last number of years I've travelled thousands and thousands of, of kilometres and I very rarely come across a, a, a garbage checkpoint. You know, and that, the, and there was a time, there was a time years ago when you'd be dodging around the local village for fear you'd walk in, you'd drive into a gap because you would be standing in the road, you know, um, and that is, that's the difference. We don't have the visibility out there, and the criminals are, are becoming more and more confident. That they can get away with what, what with their criminality. And
2: maybe it's turned on its head to some degree with these drones. Uh, what do you make of these drones? And has the IFA any advice for people if uh, they see drones come in over their land or over their property?
4: Well, we our advice is that is look, contact the Gardaí immediately. Um, and if we don't get a response from the Gardaí, I think we need we 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 would, we would look on that very unfavourably in the future because I think, look, we have, mm. and as I say already. Should you try to
2: a, disable these things, though, if you do see them?
4: Well, sure. Look, at, I don't know what uh. I don't know the technology on these things, but I, all I know is that our advice is, if you find anything like that on the face, or you're anywhere suspicious, immediately contact the Gobi.
2: All right. Listen, Richard, good to talk to you. Uh, I'm sure uh, you'll be watching with interest uh, when the committee publishes its, its report. Uh, thanks uh, for telling us a, a little bit about your input and your contribution yesterday and for joining us on the programme this morning. Richard Kennedy is Vice President of the Irish Farmers Association, the IFA.
1: Michael, Michael
5: Reed on
2: LMFM. Legal advice would be given from state-funded uh, solicitors uh, to people complaining that uh, they've been raped or sexually assaulted. Assault ahead of criminal trials. This is under proposed legislation being forwarded by Fianna Fáil. Emma Coffey is a solicitor practising in Loud and as you know she's also a Fina Fall counsellor, and she joins us now. Good morning and thanks for joining us. I suppose uh, with your legal background in this you'd have more understanding of the problems that people face at the moment. What legal representation do people have if they go to the Gardaí with a complaint of this sort?
1: well at the moment they they actually don't the supports that they get is the supports through the guard of services and obviously uh, supports them that they're referred on to specialist counseling services so in regards to legal actual one on one legal advice for victims they don't actually have that
2: and they don't and actually what? take a case do they i mean this no, is they, the they may go on to take states. a civil case but in a criminal case it's the state that takes the yes.
1: case It's the state. And what this bill is actually seeking is to afford a greater support and protection to victims of alleged offences involving sexual and violence. And speaking about this, and and I mean, it's it's time and time again, I've heard it, is that victims actually don't understand the intricacies and, and what is actually... They have to undertake uh, in, in, in ensuring that a prosecution is successful in regards to these crimes, so uh, whilst was the guardie and i have to I have to make a point that this is not a, a reflection on the guardie the guardie's uh, obligation is to investigate the crime mm. and ensure that a prosecution is is met but at, at the minimum what what this it 's not going to solve everything, but what it 's going to do is to provide legal support afforded to the victims and give them the confidence. to to ensure that they undertake a process that they they understand. I mean, all too often, complainants file uh, a trial very intimidating, highly uh, stressful, and are, in fact, surprised by the trial process mm. and and what we need to recognise and what this bill and I'm, I have to say I have a fu- I'm fully supportive of it is that we need to have a more compassionate approach uh, to be adopted and what it ensures is that g- giving a victim legal advice or, or, or an opportunity to, to have a one-on-one legal representation ensures that they're aware as to the intricacies of how a case is put together. They're aware that reports must be compiled. They're aware that a book of evidence must be served mm. in the alleged uh, offender. And they're aware, more importantly, they're aware that they have to actually physically go into court give
2: evidence and will be open to cross Well well, that's the thing isn't it, I I, I mean if uh, somebody is the victim of a a sexual assault, as things stand you'll go to the Guardian, you'll make a complaint they'll investigate, uh, if they feel uh, there's reason to, they may arrest somebody, if I will be felt to the DPP, if the DPP feels a case should be taken, it'll go to court at that stage then uh, it's a case between the state and somebody for acting in a criminal way but you may be called as a witness now as part of that process you'll be cross-examined and you may be asked about how you were dressed, or your uh, previous sexual history or issues that you would feel have nothing to do with the assault uh, that uh, was carried out on you. In fact, we quite often hear from victims who feel that they've been re-victimised by going through this process.
1: Yes, and and I'm not going to say that this bill addresses all of that, but what it certainly does is allow the victims to be fully appraised of 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 what is the possibility that could have, could await them if they go to court, and actually gives them the confidence. Um, and the preparation that that people need. I mean, in ordinary court cases, with you know civil court cases, witnesses are stressed anyway in those mm-hmm. matters. In, in these instances, uh, it it is highly a highly intimidatory uh, arena and it's a highly stressful arena. And often, many victims don't even realise that they may they in fact have to take the stand and give evidence and be open to cross examination until maybe very very close to the trial. So this this bill, as I say, it won't address all of the of the shortfalls in relation to those particular situations, but what it will do is afford the victim the same opportunity and, and the same right to legal advice as the alleged offenders, and, and I believe that that should be, as legislators, we should allow people who are victims of crimes of this nature, the confidence to not only be able mm. to report them, but the confidence to be able to give e- evidence uh, and know have a full understanding of the intricacies of a case.
2: Uh, and the case to takes. to uh, expect what might be asked, uh, yes. to expect yes. that you might be asked about how you were dressed or your previous sexual uh, experience or, or, or history or whatever, uh, uh, and so that you can prepare yourself in, in how you answer that. In the same way uh, that uh, the alleged offender will be briefed by their solicitor, who will brief them on the type of questions that they'll be asked.
1: Well, the alleged offender will be given, a, as is, as is is their right, a book of evidence which will contain the full evidence against them. So, uh the, the solicitor, as there is their their job and their duty, will apprise an alleged offender of of what is contained in there and the possible questions that may be raised on foot of that evidence. Mm. Um, and uh, ultimately. Uh, I would would hope that the uh, solicitor for the victim will be and should be afforded the same book of evidence in regards to it, and again, can go through it and explain in detail to the alleged uh, victim as to what was contained in there and what may be perceived or questions raised on foot of it. And I think, I I have to say, I Mm. think that is only fair and it's only right in in instances where, you know, uh, victims of sexual crime should be given an opportunity
2: and support of this type. Okay, well, I suppose what matters is what the government thinks, or at least to a large degree, that's what matters. At this stage, the government isn't opposing the bill, which means that it'll continue to make its way through the Rocktas. But in terms of funding this service, has it been costed by FINAFO?
1: Uh, I I, I don't, I'm not aware of the costings and I'm not aware if if there has been any research in it but what I am aware of is that that in the the first two quarters of 2018 there has been a 10% increase on these these crimes of this nature Uh, and what I do think is that further research is needed in relation to the nature of those crimes a report of one and four of last week have, have actually indicated that they've had to shut down their service and they have a 12 month waiting list <clears throat> to a of those services, so I think this this bill will be uh, very welcomed in in relation to support of of victims. And sometimes, you know, past cost, cost people give out about legal aid in relation to being afforded to to uh, so alleged an offenders. Yeah, yeah. uh, and under our constitution, everyone is innocent until proven guilty, yeah. and it's quite grounded in law. But I think the same. <laughs> um, as the same services should be given to victims of sexual crime in, in, in these types of
2: scenarios. Okay, so, we, we've over, um, We're over time Emma, I'm sorry I have to leave okay. it there but thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Emma Coffey is a Fianna Counselor and a practising solicitor in Louth.
1: Michael Reed on
2: LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
6: Good morning, Michael. John from Navin was in touch in relation to Brexit and what's going on at the moment. And he feels that if Theresa May had a way out, she would take it and back out of a deal altogether. In relation to Brexit, he means that he she wouldn't want to leave the, the EU at this stage. That's his thoughts mm. on it. He thinks that she did make a mistake in deciding to withdraw and that if they could only have another vote on it, he think it would be a different outcome this time around. Well, oh,
2: He may be right. Uh, she was a, a stay campaigner, wasn't she?
6: Uh, another listener, Jim, from Drogheda on the same topic, says that it is encouraging to see the leaders in Europe are standing by Ireland on the border issue and holding firm against the UK. If they need another year to strike a deal on the border, then that is what should happen. And hopefully Theresa May does see it that way and will take the extra time needed.
2: Yeah, well, I imagine they will somehow find a a deal. They'll find a a, a way to make the impossible possible because that is the art of politics.
6: Sean just wonders, and I suppose he's echoing another comment that I read out yesterday, that what difference will more time make? Mm. That they've done lots and lots of talking and it just seems to be that they're going round in circles. Wants to know, Michael, do you not agree?
2: (laughs) Um, No, I don't really uh, because uh, I think uh, I agree that they are going around in circles, but I think more time uh, is uh, the prudent thing to do because otherwise you're looking at the United Kingdom crashing out of Europe and that is a disaster uh, beyond anyone's uh, imagination really but uh, I mean in time uh, things will change uh, and they will find a a way of putting a a brave face on it and saving face and uh, maybe changing the political landscape. Uh, I mean you take the DUP out of the equation and uh, it's a completely different scenario it may require uh, another referendum in the United Kingdom, it may require a general election in the United Kingdom Uh, it may require something unknown Known at the stage, but I'm sure they will find a deal in time and they need to be given the time to do that.
6: Joanne says that she runs a small business in Candy Loud and that a lot of business people are very nervous mm. about what's going to happen right in to relation mm. to mm. Brexit and that she thinks that the ordinary person may not realise the the pressures that business people feel in how they're going to deal with this if it mm. does happen because as she says, a hard border would be just unthinkable. Mm.
2: Well that's it and uh, God, I I hope I'm not wrong on what I said a minute ago because it really would be unthinkable and there's lots of reason to be nervous and to be very concerned uh, about it and uh, there's no reason to take our eye off the ball uh, despite uh, the assurance that I might have offered a few minutes ago.
6: Um, If I can move then to the presidential election. There was some comment just following on from the TV debate last night. Teresa from County Mead phoned in right at the start of the show. She was saying, I was looking at the debate with Pat Kenny last night and she thought it was disgraceful the behaviour of some of the contestants. She felt that the only one who behaved with a bit of dignity and this is her 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 words was michael d higgins she says i'm not really a fan of his to be honest michael but i did think he behaved with dignity i thought a lot of the fighting was appalling
2: okay uh,
6: another listener says I I watched the presidential debate, Michael, in the hope of finding out a bit more about the candidates and what they are actually standing for before I vote Mm. in the election. But I felt that there was a lot of bickering going on and digs at each other. You didn't really get to see what, uh, I suppose... As this listener puts it, the main um, issues that the candidates are hoping to address if they do get into office?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think it's the vision uh, they would have for the presidency that we haven't been hearing. We've been hearing a, a lot of, about a lot of problems in the country, a lot of concerns that they have about the incumbent president uh, and so on. But I'm not sure uh, who has brought vision to the debate.
6: Jerry phoned in on the same topic and says that Jerry feels that uh, Michael D. Higgins has been an excellent president but does feel that it's time for him to move on and let one of the other candidates step up to the mark. He feels that people should bear this in mind that he does think, he says he's not aged, but he does think that a president needs to have a huge amount of energy to devote to the job and seven years is a long time.
2: Well I know at least five people People uh, who would uh, agree with that uh, and we'll be speaking with one of them shortly. <laughs> okay.
6: Uh, Paddy from Kells contacted us uh, following your interview. yesterday.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
6: Today with Sean Gallagher. And it was in relation to comments he said that you made about Fianna Fáil. Because he's been a member of Fianna Fáil all his life and he says that they have done more for the education sector than any other political party. But you, you claimed, Michael, that they destroyed the country for young people, forcing them to leave. This was during the discussion. My
2: mistake. My, You know, I did. I said they destroyed the country for young people, forcing the young people to leave. My mistake. Fianna Fáil destroyed the country for everybody.
6: Anyway, Paddy does yeah. not mm. agree with that. Oh, right, he okay. thinks it's blatantly untrue. Oh. He, and mm. he felt it was a very ignorant thing to say to mm. Sean Gallagher. Yeah. And he feels very offended by it. He actually Mm. feels, he says, to not listening to us anymore. And he would be a regular listener because he does Mm. think that you overlooked the things that they have done, Mm. particularly in education.
2: Okay, well, maybe it was phrased wrongly. Fianna Fáil were in office. Uh, at the time that the country sank into the sea uh, and uh, as to whether they were responsible for it or, or not, uh, we may disagree. I think uh, most people would agree that they were at least in part responsible for it. Uh, and undoubtedly, many people would uh, agree that their greatest cheerleaders at the time were Finnegale. Peter
6: from Dundalk phoned in uh, in relation to that interview with Sean Gallagher and he felt that uh, the candidate came across very well. He says that he had a lot of time for Sean Gallagher on the last occasion that he ran and did feel that he lost out, although he does think that Michael D. Higgins has done a very good job. And what he's suggesting is that maybe it's time for Sean Gallagher to have his go (laughs)
2: okay. as he puts it (laughs) Well we'll find out I'm sure on the 27th of uh, next month Now let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the ambulance service because members of uh, the National Ambulance Service Representative Association NASRA which uh, represents about 500 members or so have said uh, that they're putting in place a ban on overtime from the 7th of November Brandon Flynn is a member of the NASRA branch of uh, the Psychiatric Nurses Association. Good morning, Brendan. What's this about?
5: Uh, Michael, good morning. Thank you, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, we, we actually represent over 600 members at this stage uh, within the National Ambulance Service. The dispute uh, really goes back to, uh, to 2017, October 2017, when the Ambulance Service uh, Management, or the HSC made a unilateral decision to cease deductions uh, for, for new members joining our organisation. Uh, a a, a facility that they had provided for several previous years for existing members.
2: Uh, And the HSE says it it doesn't recognise the Psychiatric Nurses Association or NASRA as negotiating bodies, which is why they're not collecting dues.
5: Well, they do recognise the Psychiatric Nurses Association uh, in the wider HSE, and they regularly uh, deal and negotiate with them. They've just chosen uh, not to recognise our our branch within the ambulance service uh, and we would consider that uh, an affront uh, to our right to organise and to associate, and it con- contradicts the, the principles of, uh, of equality and inclusion.
2: And this ban on overtime is an escalation of a, a dispute that got underway on the 10th of this month.
5: It is indeed, and uh, since uh, since the 10th of this month, we we have uh, we've obviously engaged in in a, in a level of industrial action that we hoped would. Uh, would bring the ambulance service and uh, the HSE to, uh, to the table and to, to deal with us. Uh, but that obviously hasn't been successful so far. And unfortunately, we've been forced uh, to, intensify, to, to intensify our dispute uh, in the form of this withdrawal of overtime uh, from the from the 7th of November.
2: Okay, and uh, assuming your action goes ahead and your members don't work overtime from the 7th of November, what do you think that will mean for the ambulance service? Can the National Ambulance Service operate without 600 of its members doing overtime?
5: Well, it certainly will have an impact on, uh, on service, and uh, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and we would hope that that can be avoided even at this stage, Uh the HSE appears to be uh, blind to the fact that, of, of the impact that this will have on, on patient care and on the delivery of service throughout the country. Um, we've consistently uh, looked for more, more staff throughout the uh, throughout the country uh, to increase our numbers because the uh, the the service is already. Uh, Operating at its capacity, we would feel, and there certainly needs to be an injection of staff. So the refusal of staff to do overtime uh, is undoubtedly going to have an an impact on service.
2: Operating beyond capacity by the sounds of it, because it's reliant on overtime.
5: It is reliant on overtime, we would feel, yes.
2: All right. Uh, well, as you say, uh, there is time for intervention, uh, but uh, you've served notice at this stage uh, and uh, that action from the 7th of November. Uh, we'll talk again by the sounds of it. And thanks for talking to us this morning. Brendan Flynn, uh, a member of uh, the NASRA branch, uh, that's uh, the National Ambulance Service Representative Association branch of the Psychiatric Nurses Association. Now, uh, let's uh, hear just another couple of comments uh, very yes. quickly, if we can, Rick
6: Michael, Geraldine phoned in this morning and it's actually in relation to something we've mentioned many times on this programme but she was actually quite upset about it and it was to do with driving and coming across a person on the road wearing dark clothing. She says she was coming home yesterday evening between 6.30 and 7 and there was a woman walking on the road wearing a brown jacket and she said I nearly hit her I couldn't believe uh, that she was actually on the road maybe when she started it was bright and it had got dark you know and she was still walking but she's just kind of appealing to people who are walking at that time of the evening to wear a high vis vest she says she put on her hazard lights to warn Mm. other cars coming behind her I'm not even sure if the woman who was walking knew the danger that she was in the dark brown jacket could just blended in with the leaves and it was so hard to see her.
2: Okay, so well, I'm sure there's a message in that for everybody yes. listening to us uh, if uh, you are walking in, in uh, this uh, weather in these uh, dark evenings or dark mornings as the case may be.
6: We also had a, an email in from a listener in relation to taxi fares, Michael. Uh, this listener says, I really recently ordered a taxi to go from Grain Drath in Drogheda to Marley's Court in Drogheda. Uh, I usually get the taxi to that address and it normally costs me €12 but when I ordered this time the taxi driver who I was not familiar with charged me €20 and I was disgusted with this says rang the company and complained, but got no nowhere, and is just wondering would listeners pay that amount of money for just a five minute trip in Drahada town?
2: Okay, all right, we we'll leave it there for the moment, and uh, thanks uh, for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Remember, if you'd like to make comment on the programme, you can always ring Marie or Maggie eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight our telephone number.
1: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on
2: LMFM. The Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, told uh, the Dáil last night uh, that uh, the disclosures uh, tribunal report is emphatic in its vindication of Sergeant Morris McCabe. It states uh, that he is a genuine person who was concerned to maintain standards and that he has done the state considerable service by bringing failures within an Gardaí to the attention of the wider public. Sergeant Morris McCabe, he said, deserves the gratitude of all of us for bringing serious shortcomings to public attention. Earlier, Sergeant McCabe received a full state apology for the smear campaign carried out against him by the former Guard Commissioner Martin Callinan, more than 12 years after first raising concerns about it. The Minister said that he spoke with Sergeant McCabe on the telephone and that on behalf of the state, he apologised to him and to his family for the manner in which he was treated over a prolonged period of time. Over a lot of that time. Mick Clifford has been reporting on Sergeant McCabe's grievances and how they've been dealt with, indeed how he has been treated over many years. And Michael Clifford is a special correspondent with the Irish Examiner and he joins us now. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, we have seen Sergeant McCabe speak firsthand on television in the course of uh, the last week uh, about how relieved he is about all of this, uh, but uh, I'm not sure that he was uh, expecting uh, the full state apology that he received yesterday or was he
7: i'm not sure what he's actually expecting it i suppose in some ways it was a formality um to the extent that he has been completely vindicated in terms of the complaints he brought forward but more importantly i think at this stage of the whole saga that it has through the charlton report been acknowledged what he was subjected to within force for bringing forward those complaints, and I think it's that, as much as anything, that um, that the minister uh, was uh, apologising for.
2: Uh, what did you make of uh, the report I- itself? I don't think anybody was surprised at uh, the vindication that uh, Sergeant McCabe uh, received or the vilification, if you like, uh, that Martin Callanan received. Uh, were you surprised at the the, the way uh, the report concluded uh, Dave Taylor, the press officer for the Garda, had behaved?
7: I, I was a bit surprised at some of the language that was used only because these reports tend to be very dry affairs, and judicial comments tends to be restrained most of the time. However, that's not to say that I, I would disagree with any of it. In fact, I think it was very eloquently put under the circumstances by uh, Judge Charlton, and it also, I mean, it, it put into some context the enormity of what we're talking about. Because when you think about it, the, the head of the police force, one of the most powerful individuals in the state, and his press officer, the, the, the man who liaises with the media, and all the power that can be disseminated through that. For them to be involved in a campaign to denigrate a sergeant from County Cavan, who brought forward uh, complaints of malpractice and who highlighted elements of what was wrong within the Gardaí, for them to be involved in that. Mean the, well, I mean, I think, while well, in some ways we've become inured to scandals, but I think the enormity of that probably bypassed us uh, to some extent, and also because this has been effectively drifted out over the years because of the nature of it. But, I mean, it's an absolutely massive scandal that that, that, that would be perpetrated against anybody um, through those agencies, not to mind mm. against somebody who's effectively, as Judge Charlton pointed out, as Judge Kevin O'Higgins pointed out before him, as the Taoiseach has pointed out, somebody who is doing the state of service.
2: I think Justice Chardon spoke quite eloquently about yourself, Michael Clifford, uh, about uh, the accuracy, the integrity and the professionalism of your reporting over all of these years on this particular story. And uh, if I remember correctly, it was yourself in the Irish Examiner uh, and Katie Hannan on RTE and Primetime that brought forward uh, the transcripts from the O'Higgins investigation uh, and how that questioned the treatment of Sergeant Morris McCabe uh, because uh, there was an accusation uh, that the legal team acting on behalf of the commissioner were directed to impugn his integrity.
7: Yeah, well, I think well, there's, there's a bit of confusion around that. The, the, the story I broke was, and it was incomplete in that I didn't have the complete access to the file, for example, that Judge Charton had for his tribunal. But the thrust of the story I broke was that Noreen O'Sullivan Um, behind the closed doors of the commission gave the go-ahead for Sergeant McCabe's motivation and credibility and integrity, and later it was withdrawn in terms of integrity, that was described as as an error, but that she gave the go-ahead for that to be challenged or attacked, or whatever language you want to use. Now, Mrs Sullivan, in evidence herself, um, said described that as having faced an almost impossible dilemma. The solicitor to the guardie at the time, and this came out in the Tribune as well, mm-hmm. described what was ongoing as political dynamite. Now, I never said that she instructed it. I said that she gave the OK to it, which was what was from the transcripts, and she was cleared of instructing it. But even on that issue, the term of reference asked whether she had used a false accusation of child abuse and nobody in the media, to the best of my knowledge, ever said that, so there's questions over the term, but there was a certain amount of confusion about that, and certainly in terms of any allegations, if they were out there, and as I say, I don't recall any, that Miss O'Sullivan used a false allegation of uh, child sexual abuse to attack him, uh, absolutely she was she was cleared of that, but the issue around... Uh, different approaches to Sergeant McCabe in public and private. I mean, as I say, she acknowledged that herself that she found herself being faced with that, and the judge did say that he found her failure to consult with her lawyers at the time around this uh, difficult to understand. And he said that some of the a lot of confusion that followed may have been avoided if she had managed to uh, to consult with her legal team at the time.
2: Mm. Uh, but uh, that's uh, fairly. Lukewarm criticism, isn't it? Uh, I mean, he also said oh, yeah, that yeah, he, yeah. he also said that he he found it difficult that she to 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 think that she wasn't aware of a, a smear campaign, particularly after Martin Callinan telling uh, the Justice Committee that he he felt uh, McCabe's behaviour and John Wilson's behaviour was disgusting, and then uh, travelled by car with Noreen O'Sullivan and he felt that at that stage uh, the campaign would have been discussed to some degree, but generally speaking. Uh, she was cleared of any wrongdoing and vindicated.
7: Yeah, I mean, the, in, in, in terms of... Well, again, you see, to put it in the context of what allegations were there against her, the allegations made by David Taylor that she was aware of this campaign, he, um, Judge Charlton completely dismissed that. He said there was no evidence of it whatsoever. And they, they were made in the context, as Judge Charlton outlined, in what appears to have been a strategy by Dave Taylor to effectively um, manoeuvre himself out of the difficulties he was in. And in particular, he was very bitter towards Noreen O'Sullivan, um, who, it would seem in retrospect, was entirely correct in removing him from the the job of press office. So she was certainly vindicated in terms of any allegations that uh, Dave Taylor made against her. There's no doubt about that. Uh, There's been a bit of rewriting of history as well, though, because Mm. it has been kind of suggested that both herself and Frances Fitzgerald both were hounded from office on false allegations. Now, I wrote a piece in the examiner on Tuesday, Francis Fitzgerald's resignation had far more to do with political handling around the issue in the end, rather than anything to do with O'Higgins. And in terms of Mr. O'Sullivan, it has to be remembered in the twelve months prior to her resignation, you had scandals such as Temple Moore and and the financial irregularities there, the million false spread tests, the miscalculation mm. of homicide figures. All of these things were heat on as well prior to uh, Miss O'Sullivan resigning. So, whereas issues around the general, uh, the, the broad Morris McCabe story fed into attitudes towards um, both of those individuals, I think to exclusively say that they were due to that and that it has been shown that there was no basis for anything might be stretching it a small bit.
2: Right, uh, and Charlie Flanagan said uh, that uh, Francis Fitzgerald's uh resignation resulted in a uh, loss to the cabinet he said he didn't believe it served the public interest though it may have served political interests and in some people and parties in this house and i think he referred to the media uh, at some stage uh, but you're saying that and i read your article on tuesday you're saying that uh, there's a selective interpretation of the uh, uh, events that led to her resignation
7: Entirely. Some politicians, and, I, and it's been quoted recently, and, they, and it would seem that they were completely incorrect, had suggested at the time that what these emails that were released last November showed was that um, Francis Fitzgerald was aware there was a strategy to attack Maurice McCabe, and she stood by and did nothing. Now, Judge Charlton has completely dismissed that, and that, that came from a couple of politicians. Again, I don't know where in the media this is alleged to have come from. What did emerge was that she was aware of the strategy we mentioned that was there to to attack Sergeant McCabe's motivation. And she gave the impression, most certainly, when this emerged, initially through the examiner a year later in May 16, that she knew nothing about it. And last November, Leo Varadka went into the House and told the House on the basis of a briefing from her that she knew nothing about it. And then the email emerges to show that she did. So I, I don't think anybody, and, and I, there were some wild accusations in, in the doll that perhaps she um, may have been minded to, to agree to a strategy to go after Morris McCabe. To be fair to Frances Fitzgerald, I, nor to the best of my knowledge, anybody in the media ever suggested that. And I think she's a perfectly upstanding woman and, and, and a politician. But there were issues around her handling of the matter, when she knew, what she knew, and what she conveyed to the public. But apart from any of that, there would be absolutely nothing to prevent Leo Varadkar restoring her to Cabinet once other elements that were clarified in the Charlton Tribune. And in fact, he had a, an ideal opportunity there at the weekend following the resignation of Dennis Nocton. And for some reason, she wasn't restored. Mm. So this was a matter of waiting for Charlton to so-called vindicate her then why was she not restored to cabinet if that's all that was at issue?
2: Am I right in thinking that whilst uh, the report has been published it really is just uh, another chapter in this ongoing story uh, and uh, to expand on that Jim O'Callaghan Fianna just Justice Spokesperson spoke about Sergeant McCabe last night and how he was treated and whilst he's received a state apology that perhaps he's entitled to another remedy uh, and in relation uh, to Martin Callanan, he, he said uh, that it has to be recognised that the most senior police officer engaged in a, a campaign of uh, calamity against him, uh, as described by Justice Charlton, uh, and that has to be rectified. So so, so what next uh, for Maurice McCabe, do you think, uh, and indeed for the former commissioner?
7: Yeah, well, in, ter- in terms of Morris McCabe and, and all the events around it, I think this is very important to disregard all of the other inquiries... What you had was a narrative like this. Initially, he made complaints. Initially, there were internal inquiries. He was not satisfied with them, and he pursued them. Then you had external agencies looking into it. For example, in relation to the penalty points, you had the comptroller and auditor general, you had the guard inspectorate. All of them showed that Morris McCabe, more or less, was entirely correct and that the investigations done by uh, the Gardaí were completely deficient in a lot of ways and effectively did not show what Morris McCabe had been complaining about. A similar scenario applied to his complaints of criminal investigations that was shown by the O'Higgins Commission that he was, again, entirely correct in what he did there. What Charlton has done is demonstrate how, once he made those complaints, elements within the force were geared against him and attempted to, I think it's not a stretch to say, to destroy his character. So to that extent, it is at the end of the road, thankfully, completely, and to a large extent in terms of, of the official record it is now out there what he was subjected to. Where it goes from here, I understand his actions pending against the state and remember what he was subjected to and his family with TUSLA, the Child and Family Agency, where that completely erroneous accusation was generated. I understand his actions pending against the state and, and uh, the Gardaí and TUSLA and we just have to wait and see that, that that's a matter then for the courts or, or negotiations or whatever happens in regard to that. But... To a large extent, I think it's over for him and his family, and I think they are entirely relieved that after 12 years, they'll be able to make some effort to um, to get on with their lives.
2: Good stuff. Thanks, Mick. Thanks for joining us as always. Michael Clifford is Special Correspondent for the Irish Examiner.
1: Michael Reed on,
2: on LMFM. In eight days' time, you'll get uh, the opportunity to vote for the next president of Ireland. You'll have six candidates uh, to choose from, and one of them is uh, the Sinn Féin candidate Leah Ní who joins us here this morning. And thank you for coming into us today. Thank like like all of the candidates, uh, you've uh, been asked into us, and like the other candidates who have taken up uh, on that opportunity, I'll ask you to start uh, this morning by setting out your stall as such. So and maybe telling our our listeners just briefly why you'd like to be the next president.
8: Okay, well, quite simply, I suppose, firstly, I bring the credentials to it. I'm a member of the European Parliament um, and so I have the political skill and the political acumen and the experience and skills from the European perspective in terms of legislation and all of that. Um, And really, when I started thinking about it, when I was approached, it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't something that I came to lightly. It's an office of huge responsibility and I take that very seriously And for me, it was about becoming a voice for everybody, north, south, east and west. Uh, And it's about having the opportunity of talking about a new Ireland and where we should be going as a new Ireland for the future. An Ireland that should be based on equality and inclusivity, respecting people's identities, um, our culture, our language, our richness. And I think it's about being an outward voice as well and humanitarian in our approach. And I think we can be, we're a small island in in the edge of the Atlantic, but at the same time, I think we can be a beacon, in other words, to other countries uh, in terms of how we deal with things, how humanitarian we are, how inclusive we are and respectful of each other and all of that. So I think it's about shaping a new Ireland where we see equality. Look, the last seven years have changed radically uh, and we have seen gender equality and, and repeal the 8th or marriage equality and repeal the 8th. Um, but we have an awful long way to go And when we see the level mm. of poverty that we have, not just not just those on the very edges of poverty, but those even who are on middle income um, that are struggling to keep a roof over their heads. How many families do we know that are one paycheck away from living in a car? Uh, And it's not in Ireland that we should be happy to endorse. We need to change that. Um, And I'm about change. Mm. That's the short answer. All
2: right. What kind of a change or or to what extent? Uh, Because when you say uh, you want to be a voice for everybody, north, south, east and west, uh, a green and an orange voice.
8: Absolutely. Uh, No question about that. For me, it's not about excluding anybody Mm. uh, and it's about trying to find a way that we can share. Do
2: you understand uh, unionist concerns at the moment that Northern Ireland is uh, about to be annexed from the rest of the United Kingdom?
8: I do, and look at, uh, we've had the Border Communities Against Brexit, which I'm meeting again later on today, and we've had them over in the European Parliament, so I understand the issues hugely where Brexit is concerned, and particularly for the Unionists. And in fact, I would be very concerned that when the EU funding, and Mm. I sit on the EU Budgets Committee, so I know what's coming down the tracks for the next seven years, Mm. it's not a pretty sight. Do you support
2: Uh, Unionists in their call for Northern Ireland leaving the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom?
8: I respect their their opinion, you know and they are. they view themselves and identify themselves as being British, and I think mm. that has to be respected and you know you they don't want see them, to, them as British they though, do want you? to remain I see them as having a dual identity. Mm. they live in the island of Ireland but yeah, they, but you don't they see they them as being british do you? As
2: being i british. mean
8: I see y- them as being you know people who resp- who want to remain to be British, mm. and that's okay but
2: you're somebody who's supported the armed struggle.
8: I'm somebody who is talking about creating this new Ireland, that we need to have these uncomfortable conversations to talk about what does it mean to have identity. Is it that uncomfortable that you ignore it? No, it's not. But to answer your question, because you didn't allow me to answer it fully, about where the unionists are in terms of Brexit, um, certainly I see that 56% voted to remain within the EU. That also has to be respected. It was their democratic right to do that. Uh, And I think that even the unionists, when they see that, Westminster is really throwing the North under the bus as collateral damage in one sense regarding Brexit. Uh, and I see that when the funding is taken out of that, those constituents on the ground who rely on cap, who rely on structural funds, that's not going to be given mm. to them by Westminster. So there is, I think we should be able to have that conversation about if the backstop isn't in place, if we don't have guarantees that we're not going to have a border, that it makes sense that we talk about what kind of an Ireland we want to create and having it as that inclusive orange and Mm. green.
2: But you don't want a border. You want a a reunited Ireland. Absolutely. And you said you'll work for that. Uh, Can you be a president to to people uh, who were on the other side of the armed struggle that you support?
8: I can, of course. And let me be very clear. I'm proud to be nominated Mm. as a Sinn Féin candidate. But once I am president, I will be a president for all of those people and above party politics. Mm. And that is another, I suppose, reason for me to look at the whole presidency to give you that opportunity to talk to people that's outside of perhaps your normal base, Mm. that you are respectful of all of that because you're non-partisan. That means you're Mm. not affiliated with any party and it gives you a level where you have that voice. The other thing I would be very keen to do, I am not somebody who is a shrinking violet. Um, I'm quite outspoken and not afraid to stand up for what I believe is right for the people of Ireland. I've done that in Brussels very effectively. And I also think it's not about being cozying up to the government in one sense. I think we have to create mm-hmm. a healthy discourse where the government are held to account and that there's a challenge there because you're appoint, you're elected by the people as an Uachtarán, whereas it's not an appointeeship by the government, okay. which would be the case with Michael D. Higgins continuing on as a coronation if we okay. haven't challenged right.
2: that. Let's talk about Leah if we can, just for another minute. I uh, can, of course. Um, but uh, is Leon Narita somebody uh, who's... Uh, Willing to go uh, against the views uh, of the Republicans. Uh, you are a Sinn Féin candidate, but a lot of shinners would say that you've compromised your Republican credentials by saying you'd wear a poppy.
8: Let's clear up the whole poppy issue. Certainly, as a Republican, it doesn't diminish my Republicanism in any way, in my view. Um, I'm secure in my Republicanism. However, I understand very well, and it was a struggle for me to consider wearing the poppy. I know that so many Republicans, and rightly so, are still hurting about atrocities committed by the British Army. Um, I'm talking about, you know, Bloody Sunday Mm. and Ballymurphy and all of those. Um, And I understand that that symbol of the red poppy is extremely hurtful. But this is about me being a president, and it has to be almost bigger than me. Mm. Um, It's bigger than my own personal struggle. And it's about making bold moves towards the unionist community and recognizing that they hurt as well mm. uh, and by making that bold move you're perhaps opening a whole avenue of where we can have that conversation of moving towards that dialogue that we can talk about well mm. at least they will view it as a as a move we saw the queen you know in the garden of remembrance okay. and all of that mm. so it, it's it's about being able to to move outside of your own. Mm.
2: Do, 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 do you side with uh, the Republican concerns that are, there are about Drew Harris?
8: And in what regard? Oh, yes, I do. Um, look, Drew Harris has been appointed um, and you have to respect that position mm. and there were questions, as there should be with anybody. You know, these have to be... Uh, nobody's above scrutiny in that regard. Do you think he you arrested Jerry Adams for political your, reasons? Your credentials from the past always have to be scrutinized. Do you think he arrested Jerry
2: Adams for political reasons?
8: I'm not sure what his motivation was there. Um, Do you think it put your campaign to, to, certainly to certainly become to a member it. of the
2: European Parliament at risk?
8: It, it certainly, at the time I remember, it, was, it came left of field. Um,
2: in the middle of an election and, campaign... it certainly,
8: yeah, it, 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 was, it was something that I wasn't expecting, I'll put it like that.
2: In the middle of an election campaign, a political party leader is arrested in connection to an historic killing. Something that a lot of people say was partisan policing, sectarian policing. The same man is appointed as Garda Commissioner. Do you support his role as Garda Commissioner?
8: Look, irrespective of, um, and obviously at the time he was wrong and he should never have arrested Gerry Adams and that has been proven over and over again. However... Uh, the appointment of Drew Harris would not have anything to do with the presidential candidacy. It is a government decision, uh, and it wouldn't be a decision that I would be involved in, Speaking, because I don't have... Deciding to speak to the have, doll has nothing to do with no, the presidency, and you said no, you do that, me. so, no, no, sorry, uh, so no, why don't we talk about sorry, the government? No, commissioner? You're wrong, actually, in that, because within the Constitution it is perfectly within your remit to address the Houses of Arachdus. Yes, and with, in fact with the is, government. Is, yes, but at the same time, let's think about this for a second. Mary Robinson... Uh, addressed the Houses of Arathis yes. twice the Arathis has only been addressed four times and I know listeners mm. out there might think Crikey is really obsessed with addressing the Houses of Arathis." but here's my point, Mary Robinson did it twice Mary McAleese did it once mm. Michael D. Higgins did it absolutely zero times As the Guardian of the Mary, Constitution no, you should be
2: aware of Article thirteen seven thirteen, which requires you to get approval from the government. You don't
8: have to read that to me I'm perfectly aware of it but you allow me to finish on this point when Mary Robinson did address the government on the occasion where mm. she talked about immigrants uh, and the absolute failing of the state on immigrants mm. the government were uncomfortable with her speech and there is nowhere that I think that the government is going to refuse the president Is Leah Neurita uncomfortable with the question about perhaps, Drew Harris? I would say perhaps that Michael D. might have been uncomfortable asking the government because indeed his Labour colleagues mm. are there who are the very ones that inflicted the years of austerity Now to come back to Drew Harris as you really want an answer to that I think it is a decision, there are certain decisions that obviously, as an Uhtarán, and I'm here as a Mm. candidate, that is outside of my power. That is a governmental issue, nothing to do with the president. I can, however, address the government on the bigger issues of the day of the housing crisis that we have, the austerity, the broken promises.
2: Issues to do with the people? Yes. Mm. Such, a, such as interfering in the poli- p- p- political process, which is the it's charge not, against them. No, no, Plus, uh, I mean, if you talk about the issues of the people, we have a, a family listening to us locally uh, uh, who have been mourning the death of Tom Oliver, uh, who was killed by Republicans. Uh, mm-hmm. Drew Harris says he knows the Republican who ordered that killing. He gave the name, he wrote it down the a piece of paper to Judge Smithick. Uh, would you like him to... Uh, Tell people who it is, or to investigate that now as guard commissioner.
8: I think there is a duty there to absolutely get justice and truth um, for for that, and I'd have no issue with that. You know, you have to follow the the rule of law in these cases, and I don't have an issue with that. Oh, an interruption. an interruption. That's not Drew Harris on the phone by any chance. Is it? <laughs>
2: it's not indeed. All right. Um, I, actually, I think we've uh, come more or less to the uh, end of uh, the time that we have with you this morning. Uh, it's uh, been a pleasure to have you in with us uh, in the closing days of the campaign. Like all of the other candidates, uh, we'd like to wish you the best. Uh, and uh, thank you indeed, as I say, Gourmada, coming It's important mm-hmm. for people to mm-hmm.
8: realise because you never asked me about me myself. I'm from West Cork. I'm from a Gaeltacht. I'm going to mm. be very strong in the language. I had to learn English when I was four. So, Dina Hageht and Sunday Guelge. Just Misha Aaron. Well, she mm. ní, yeah. honest, so she Shani, Shani Rejas correct. Mm-hmm. It's said thought that we bring that to the Presidency, mm-hmm. Homa, because that's who we are. We're a proud Irish nation and we should really embrace that.
2: OK, thank you indeed for coming into us. Sure Leanna the Sinn Féin candidate. Michael,
8: Michael Reid on, on LMFM FM.
2: Two men are to appear before Trim a District Court in connection uh, with stolen car parts. It follows uh, a Garda operation uh, that spanned two counties and we're joined by Stephen Breen, who's the Crime Editor with the Irish sun. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks Good for morning, joining Michael. us. Uh, this was a, a fairly significant operation with raids in County Mead and Kildare.
9: Yes, well, it is a major investigation that the Gardaí are currently conducting into the, the industry that's known as the stolen car industry, where you have um, in Ireland at the moment, like I've written about this extensively in the past, where you have three major criminal gangs who are involved in the stolen car trade and what they do is they use tow trucks to steal cars um, from people's properties, they, they, they drive up in, in the early hours of the morning, attach a cable and then and steal these vehicles. And what they're doing is they're bringing a lot of these vehicles to chop shops that they have hidden around the country. And like the main areas that these gangs are operating in would be the Midlands along the border and also uh, Kildare. So they're stealing um, high-end cars. That What's a chop shop? A chop shop is a location where the criminal gangs would bring um, vehicles and then they they would then uh, store the vehicles in this, like a garage where they would then dismantle the vehicles and separate the parts from the vehicles that they have stolen and then ship these uh, uh, stolen parts overseas uh, to Mm. Poland, uh, to Lithuania, but also uh, to to the UK. And
2: easier to do that undetected because you're not talking about registration plates and that sort of thing, I gather.
9: That's right. So there is a lot of money to be made from this, Mm. but equally... they're still involved in stealing cars as well, which they often ship up north, which they often bring to the UK, which they often cloak, and which are still uh, being uh, sold, you know, overseas. So there is money to be made here. You know, it's not the same mm. as if you're, you know, holding drugs or, or holding guns. You know, the, the penalties won't be a, a severe if you're engaged in, in the stolen car trade, but mm. it, it is still a um, a big issue for the Guardian, and especially along the border there, Michael, where you have a lot of farms there as well. And what they have seen recently would be a. Spike in the number of Toyota Land Cruisers. That's that, right. That are, mm. yeah, that, that are being stolen. And, and for example, there you have like 26 um, between. I think it was a nine-month period in mm. 2017. 26 were taken and 12 recovered. But, but so far this year, over 60 have been taken and, and, and 22 recovered. So it is mm. it is a worrying uh, trend. And
2: maybe, maybe this puts it into context uh, because you quite often hear of cars being stolen to order, but they'd be relatively new, expensive cars. Uh, but we've been hearing, uh, uh, as you say, about these Land Cruisers, for example. A lot of them have been fairly old cars, not the type of thing that you'd be stealing to order. But perhaps they're stealing them For the parts to order,
9: yes, it's for the parts as well. And for another figure that that I I had, there in in June last year, um, eleven were taken in in various uh, criminal enterprises. But in June of this year, thirty-three have been taken. So it it is a problem, and there seems to be a spike, especially in the Land Cruisers. And and what the Gardaí would say is that very often, you know, some people are doing work on the farm, and you know, and they're 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 out feeding cattle or whatever. But um, some some farmers are leaving the keys in the ignition. Yeah, but instead of carrying the, the keys with them, and that's often the problem. So, like, farmers have to be vigilant, and, and rural communities have to be vigilant as well, because there are criminal gangs, and especially in the run-up to Christmas as well, you'll have these criminal gangs who are roaming around, uh, targeting isolated communities, and mm. it's, it's, it's what they make their money from, from stealing cars and from breaking into homes and, and, and targeting people. So, it is a concern, and, and that's why the Gardaí have launched these operations.
2: Indeed, Gardaí, tell me, you wouldn't believe the amount of people who leave keys in the ignition whilst they're not there not just uh, on farms but uh, parked uh, on the street and that sort of thing quite often they'll break into houses as well to get the keys to take the car
9: Yeah that's known as the creeper burglaries as well and uh, you have professional thieves here out right? there and many of them have a lot of convictions and uh, I remember interviewing um, a man from um, county Swords there who, who um, he actually um, Richard Lowndes he, he fired a shot at a, a burglar who had broken into his home and he, he just uh, speaking to him recently and he says that you know people are still uh, living in fear and, and, and the fear is that not just breaking into homes but breaking into homes in the early hours of the morning uh, elderly residents are there and people often leave their keys out in, in the hallway and they're breaking in on their way in, in a matter of, of minutes so you know th- there are concerns out there
2: mm, and I, I know uh, that in Meath uh, where they've seen and uh, along the cavern border as well where they've seen this spike in uh, the amount of land uh, rovers that have been stolen that the people have been suggesting that uh, you lock gates so that even if they get into the house and have the keys or you leave the keys in the car that they can't get out.
9: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's always, it's always about crime prevention. Mm. Remember, the guards have still launched their, the winter phase of their Operation Thor, which was launched a number of years ago to target the, the gangs who were using the motorways to target rural communities and isolated communities. So here we are in the run-up to Christmas it's the darker nights. So it's just about being vigilant and being more aware that, you know, these criminals will have no uh, problem entering your property and, and no problems, you know, stealing, you know, uh, materials that you have or cars or jewellery or whatever you have mm. there so it's just about being vigilant and trying to deter them and, and the guards are still out there as well in Operation Thor you know they've had very many successes in bringing these people before the courts but mm. I'm sure they'll be busy over the coming months
2: Yeah well uh, I'm sure some people listening to us uh, this morning will be hoping uh, that as a, a result of these raids and the arrests and indeed the ensuing court case uh, that they will have a, a problem entering <laughs> your premises or, or yeah. leaving another one as the case may be Steve. Yeah. Uh, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. As always, Stephen Breen, crime editor with The Irish Sun, brings our program to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
1: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie